Last time when you were at the pump, did you catch yourself thinking, why am I spending all my money on gas? Drive less, save more. Ride Coda. The new transit app makes riding Coda as easy as tap, tap, go. Plus, we'll help you get started with a $4.50 account credit when you download the transit app and set up your Coda account. What are you waiting for? Download the transit app today. Learn more at Coda.com slash transit app. Did you know that you could invest in crypto through your retirement account? That's right. iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies. And unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. With iTrust Capital, you also get the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Set up an account at itrustcapital.com today, and you'll even get a $100 Bitcoin funding reward. Go to itrustcapital.com. Taxes and conditions may apply. Fees apply. Bitcoin funding rewards subject to terms and conditions. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. iTrust Capital Inc. does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. Hallelujah. Are you excited this morning? All right. Are you guys excited this morning? Come on, man, for the word of the Lord. Wow, what a privilege we have to be able to hear God's word. You know, we saw on the news this week that North Korea is uh, allegedly, um, you know, looking at making peace with South Korea. A lot of, I've spoken to some people in South Korea, some Christians, and they are highly guarded about this because uh you know it's 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 not something i think we we've got to pray about it it's not just something that we think is just going to be uh easy a simple thing it's very complicated and many people do question kim jong-un's uh jong-un's um motives right in all this so you need to keep praying guys um but the one thing that we're praying for is similar to when the iron curtain fell that the gospel will go into north korea and um, supposedly there's over 200,000 Christians in prison in North Korea right now, 200,000. And it's just horrific, terrible conditions that they have to deal with. So, um, guys, they don't have a Bible. They, they don't have a church they can go to. Come on. We are so blessed. We are so blessed. We can read the Word. We can pray. We can go to church. You know, we, we are so blessed. Let's never take it for granted. Amen? Let's pray for North Korea and South Korea as well. And, of course, we have our uh, two Korean friends here, guys. Thank you. And we're praying for you guys as well, the newlyweds. And, uh, yeah, God bless you guys as you're settled here. And we're praying for Korea, right, the peninsula, the whole north and the south. So bless you guys. Um, Let's take our Bible this morning, and I just want to ask you to open to Acts chapter 13. I'm going to be sharing on the series on restoring apostolic community. Restoring apostolic community. This is actually the third message in the series, and I think this is going to be the best. All right. Um, uh, restoring apostolic community. Just go to Acts chapter 13. You're going to be uh, referring to we will be referring to different verses in this chapter throughout the teaching this morning. But I, I just want to remind you, I shared this last week by video, of course, but I want you just to hear it again because some of you uh, maybe were not here, but even if you were here, it, it's still going to be very helpful. Uh, over three years ago, Lynn and I were living in the United States of America in the state of Florida um, for about eight years or so, we had been itinerating, traveling to different places around the world in throughout the United States, North America. And we also had started a school of ministry to train people up. So while we were, you know, happy that with what we were doing, there was this sense that we realized that there was not a, a significant impact happening because we need to be able to continue to disciple uh, people. So when you go to a church and you speak for a weekend or a conference or whatever, you know, that's it. You may not ever go back. You may go back maybe a year later, but you don't know. So your impact is it's very limited in what you can do. Jesus, his way of discipleship was he had a group of guys that followed with him. And it wasn't just the 12, there were others, because remember, he sent the 70 out as well. So he developed a community, so to speak. 
And some people say, well, Jesus never planted a church. I beg to differ. I think he did plant a church because he said, I will build my church and the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So obviously the church was his idea, but the idea was not so much uh, a local gathering of people, but it was more of what is called the ecclesia. In fact, the English word church comes from a, a German word, uh, and it really is has nothing to do with the the idea of, of what the Greek word ecclesia means. Ecclesia means a people who are called out for a purpose. So we are called out for a purpose. How many know that we were not saved for privilege, but saved for purpose? Very important that we get that right. We were not saved for privilege, but saved for purpose. And as we do what the Lord has called us to do, we will experience his blessing on our lives. There's no doubt. But we are called for a purpose. We're called out of darkness into light. We're called to shine his light. We're called to be his people on mission. So the word uh, apostolic means a people that are called out, sent out actually. So if you think about apostolic and all you think about is the office of an apostle, you've missed it. Because remember in the time in John's gospel, after Jesus had been resurrected, and he saw the disciples, and he looked at them, and he breathed on them, and he said, what? Receive the Holy Spirit, right? And he breathed on them, correct? Then guess what he said next? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And what he was saying in the Greek language, as the Father has apostelled me, so I apostello you. As the Father has made me an apostle, so I will make you an apostolic people, an apostolic company. I will send you out. So God's mission has always been about sending, about going. And we cannot say we're apostolic if we're not a going people. If we say, well, we, we believe in, you know, the, the New Testament uh, teachings of the and doctrine of the apostles, because the Bible talks about, you know, they committed themselves to the, the apostles' doctrine. But if we're not engaged in mission, we're not apostolic, I'm sorry. Because the very word implies that we are a going people. We are a people on a mission. And it doesn't mean that we all go to other nations. That's not what it's about. Because as we will see with this church in Antioch, the apostles actually stayed in Jerusalem. Now, later on, it's very interesting that most, if not all, of these 12 apostles went to other countries, right? They did preach the gospel in other countries, and and 11 out of 12 of them were martyred for, for their faith. But it's all about being apostolic. So God doesn't just want a few people to be missionaries, if you want to use that term, or apostles. In, by definition, even though there is the office of an apostle or there's the ascension gift that's known as apostle, there's something beyond that. What is beyond that is that we are an apostolic people. We are a people that are on a mission. We're a people that recognize God has called us to go into all the world, make disciples. And it starts locally, right? They started in Jerusalem. But then the point came, the time came when they were not in a position uh, to be able to impact the city of Jerusalem anymore. So they had to go beyond those boundaries. But they were very comfortable. They were very content to stay where they were. You know, they, let's just look at it this way. They might have had a, you know, really big churches, churches full of people. Everything looked good. Everything seemed to be going smoothly. So why do we need to buck this trend? Why do we need to change things? How many know that change is not always easy? I saw a bumper sticker that said, change is amazing. You go first. And it's, it's the way it is. Yeah, let's change, right? Okay, so who wants to go first? And a lot of people are having a, a real adversity to change. It's difficult for them to change. Of course, our personality types, like some of us are very adventurous. We don't have a problem with change. But some people have a real challenge with change. But the fact of the matter is God has called us to be a people on mission. We cannot and will not experience significant spiritual growth 
in our comfort zones. It's only as we are challenged and stretched that we're going to grow. It's the way it works. So here we are. We're in the United States. We're, in a sense, we're saying, God, we've got to be able to pour into people. So hence the reason why we started the school of ministry. We've got to raise up disciples. We've got to raise up spiritual sons and daughters. We've got to be able to send people out to plant churches and, and go to the nations and be, you know, revivalists or, or whatever term you want to use. And by just visiting churches itinerating, we weren't able to really facilitate that goal. So we came to a point where we started this school of ministry. But while, just, just while we're ministering to people and, and teaching and training leaders, potential leaders, you know, the Lord speaks to us and he says, I'm going to shift you into a new season where you're going to develop uh, a house for my glory. And so the vision is there's really four aspects, four elements that would characterize this house. The vision is that it would be a church of all nations, that it would be a house of prayer, it would be a place where disciples were equipped, and it would be a place where people were encouraged, trained, equipped, and even resourced to go to the nations. So in this time, we, we were just, okay, Lord, this is, who, this is what you've told us, this is what you said, this is what you put in our heart, this is the vision. So we thought perhaps we'll be able to do that in this school of ministry. But then the Lord began to show us, no, I've got another location, another place. So a few weeks later, we go to a conference and we actually take the students from our school of ministry. And while we're at the conference, there's this man that we are familiar with. We know of his ministry um, and he's considered a prophet. He actually calls Lynn and I out, and this is what he said. You've been following the cloud. You've been traveling. You've been going to place to place. But God says the cloud is about to come to rest. And it's time to build the house of the Lord. And when you build the house of the Lord, it will be a church for all nations, a house of prayer, an equipping center or a place that has a school of ministry, and will have... A, a missions emphasis to reach the nations. The exact same four things he said. So we're like, wow, God, this is amazing. So the Lord couldn't make it any more clear. It was very well defined. This is what I've called you to do. So I personally, I'm a person of the word. I love the word of God. Um, I, I, you know, when I hear sermons, I always critique a sermon based on whether or not it has scriptural support for what is being taught. And so I immediately said, God, show me such a church in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit reminded me of the church in Antioch in Syria. Now, we know the church in Jerusalem. It was a fantastic church. It was an amazing church. But it was uh, homogeneous in the sense that it were just reaching Jews. They weren't reaching people beyond their own culture. And so what ends up happening is we see that the church in Antioch really is a true apostolic center. And the scriptures that, that we looked at, we, they're up on the screen. You can look at those in your own leisure. But the church is actually a true apostolic center. And I want to just look at seven characteristics of an apostolic center. And we've already looked at four. We're going to look at the fifth characteristic today, but I just want to recap and go through these very quickly. It's a place where there'll be ministry of all believers. Everyone is involved in ministry using their spiritual gifts. Secondly, it was multicultural. Thirdly, its focus was on making disciples. Fourthly, it was presence-orientated. And what I mean by that is it wasn't built on programs or it wasn't built on personalities. But it's built on, and it's literally on the presence of, of God Almighty. That's what we believe. And, and the church in Antioch was such. It had prophetic activation. That's what we're going to talk about today. Through the ministry of prophets and through the prophetic ministry of the Word of God, people were activated. It was a generous and caring church. They were very generous. They cared, they loved, they, they resourced um, the apostles who would go out and then come back and go out and come back and go out and come back. We see that as we read the book of Acts. It had an, an emphasis on reaching the nations. 
really, uh, this is the first church that was raised up to be the seedbed to be able to reach the Gentiles. The first church. God used this church in Antioch. And we've already mentioned that it was a lay movement. Because interestingly, of all the churches we read about in the book of Acts, this is the only church that was not started by apostles or evangelists. This church was started by the lay people, right? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which is at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So who was scattered? It wasn't the apostles. It was the lay people. We pick it up in Acts eleven nineteen. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word. Initially, it was to only to other Jews, but eventually they changed that and they began to reach the, the uh, Hellenistic Greeks as well. So the uh, second characteristic of this church is it was very multicultural. It was a blending of races and cultures. It was a true multi-ethnic body of believers. And as I said, that was not the way it was at first, but later on, that's how it came. If we look at Acts 11, 19 through 21, we see the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch particularly from Cyprus, which is an island, and Cyrene, which is in present-day Libya, in North Africa, in other words, they ended up preaching to the Gentiles about Jesus. And God was endorsing what they were doing. God was pleased with what they were doing because it says, the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So God was well pleased with what they were doing. It was an amazing thing. So again, we see here that we've got different people. And so the church is reaching a broad cross-section of cultures and ethnic groups. The city of um, Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time and one of the most ethnically diverse cities. There were Jews, there were Africans, there were, there were Arabs, there were um, people from, from, from the Romans, Romans, the Greeks. There was such a diversity of people living there. And what ended up happening when they came together to worship God from all of their different nationalities, they're called Christians first in Antioch. Why? Because they didn't have a word for these guys. What are we going to call them? They're not Jews, they're not Greeks, they're not, you know, what are we going to call them? They're, they've, they've broken through these racial barriers here, so let's call them Christians. So it's actually a very good term. You know, we have heard it taught, and you can read it in commentaries. It's, it was a term of disdain and disrespect, but I don't believe so. I don't believe that we can say that. I believe they were said, we don't know what to call these guys, so let's call them Christians. In other words, they're followers of Jesus. Let's call them after the master themselves. And then as we see in the, the 13th chapter that the leaders in the church, again, they constituted a very diverse background of, of ethnic groups. So we look at and we see there's Barnabas, there's Simeon, who is called Niger, which literally means in Greek, Simeon, who is the black man. Many believe he's from Africa, clearly. Perhaps he was from Nigeria or somewhere like that, what we would call modern-day Nigeria. Lucius of Cyrene, he's from North Africa, from modern-day Libya. Manian, who had been bred up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who, of course, was a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrew. So there's a real diversity in leadership, a very interesting church. Thirdly, their emphasis was on discipleship. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 26 in particular. When Barnabas came after the Christ, these new believers um, had, had been won by the lay people from the church in Jerusalem, Barnabas comes and he realizes he's got to work on his hands. God's done amazing things, but these people need taught. They need discipled. So what does he do? He calls for Saul, who would later be called Paul. 
and he summons Saul to come and help him. And he brings him back to Antioch, and both of them stay there for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. Now, think about this, okay? This goes against the way we do discipleship in our modern culture. It really flies in the face. Why? Because these are all new believers. They have no background in, in understanding who Jesus is and For one year, they pour into them, Barnabas and Saul, discipling them. And then guess what happens at the end of one year? Acts 13. There were certain prophets and teachers in the church. These guys are now the leaders in the church. So after one year of intense discipleship, there's such a radical transformation in their lives that they step up and become the leaders in the church. Now, if you think that the bar was low to be a leader in the church back then, let me tell you, uh, that is not the case. The bar was very, very high. If you were going to be a leader, you had to have your family life in check. You had to have your character in check. You had to, you know, and when you look at all of this, you see that God looks at people and he says, look, if you're my follower, if you're my disciple, you've got to be above reproach. You've got to have a good reputation, even with outsiders. You can read all of these uh, qualifications in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. So in all of this stuff, we see there that God had a high standard for leadership. But these guys arose to the occasion. They said, it's, it's not a problem. We love God. We're, 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 we're on fire for God. We'll repent. We'll obey God. We'll surrender our lives. And they walked And they became examples to the other believers. Even after just one year, they became exemplary leaders in the church. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. Now, that's what it tells us. Now, fourthly, as we mentioned, they were presence-orientated. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now... Then it says, so after more fasting and prayer. Recognize this was a lifestyle. These guys were committed to fasting, to prayer, to worship. This was a lifestyle. In fact, they gathered together daily to worship God, to pray together. And these weren't little short prayer meetings. These were deep, profound times of seeking God together. These are times of incredible worship that were protracted and prolonged. And they were times, guys, when they fasted a lost art in the church today. But they fasted together because why? They were hungry for God. They wanted the presence of the Lord. They couldn't live without the presence of the Lord. And so they said, we've got to connect with God. We've got to worship Him. I'm sure it was a heart of gratitude overflowing for what uh, the Lord had done for them. But they engaged in this. They were hungry and they were jubilant. They were intimate. They were deep. This was a a church that valued the presence of God Almighty more than anything else. And if we lose the presence of God, we have nothing. We have nothing. In fact, church is boring without the presence of God. Church is nothing without the presence of God. If we don't have the presence of God, then something is seriously wrong. We look at the church and Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And often we quote that scripture where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers the door and opens the door, you know, and invites me in, and I'll come in, I'll sit down, we'll, we'll have a meal together, we'll sup together. And we use that as an invitation to call the unbeliever, the, the sinner, the person who doesn't know Jesus, to salvation, but that's not at all what that verse was about. It was written to a church, to the church of Laodicea. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Am I correct? It was a church. So what was Jesus doing? He was saying, You are going through your religious motions. You are engaging in these rituals of of worship, of prayer, of gathering together, but my presence is sadly missing from your very midst. Jesus wasn't even in their midst. He's knocking 
and asking permission. Can I come in? You guys are having, uh, you know, these, these worship services, but I am no longer the centerpiece of it. It's all about religion. It's all about activity. But the very presence of God, Jesus, was not there. Wow. What a sad commentary. And we get so busy that we, we you know, we, we experience, many Christians today, the only time we experience the presence is if we go to a good church, is, is, that's it, when we go to a good church. But we don't live in the presence of God because we're not engaging in worship. We're not engaging in prayer. We're not engaging. So we have to recognize that this is the, this is the engine. This is the fuel. Everything we do, it has to be about the presence of God. Unless your presence goes with me, Moses said to the Lord, don't send me up. Right? Because what? In his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures of more. The times of refreshing from count will come from the presence of the Lord. God says, I will send my presence and my presence will give you rest. So without his presence, we have nothing. What a boring way to live. You know, that, no wonder Paul said, I'd rather eat, drink, and, you know, because tomorrow we die. It's, it's like if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, if he's not alive, if he's not present in our meanings, then you're better off partying and living. That's what Paul was saying. Don't be shocked. I'm not saying that. I'm not telling somebody to go do that. I'm saying it was, it was hypothetical. He was saying if Jesus is not raised from the dead, of course, Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is alive and his presence is accessible, but we have to welcome his presence. We have to open the door. We have to invite him in. We have to be intentional. You know, think about that. What glorious condescension that the king of the universe... Would, would stoop down to that place where he would ask permission to come into our midst. Look, he can wipe us out. He can send legions of angels. He can do what he wants. But he asks, he knocks, may I come in? Right? And that famous painting by Holman Hunt, you know, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. He, you know, he intentionally did not put a door opener, a lever or, or doorknob on that painting, on the outside, because he said the reason is it can only be opened from the inside. We, can all, we are the ones, we as a church, so we have to invite the presence of God. We have to worship until we break through. We have to seek God until we experience his presence. It's more important than anything else. Today's message, number the fifth point, we're going to look at prophetic activation. And let me just say that we all need to know God's will and plan for our lives. Do you believe that? I mean, I had someone comment on Facebook the other day. I wish I knew what God's will is for my life. And I said, dude, you need to come to church on Sunday, man. Like you live, he lives here in Perth. Oh, I can't make it. And I said, this message will answer your question. This message will turn the lights on for your life so you will know what God's will is for your life or at least how to access it. But I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Something's up. Okay, there could be a legitimate reason. But for me, if I was so intense in my yearning and my desire to know what God's will is, I'd change my plans. You know, I, I would. I'd say, oh, my gosh, I need to be there. This, everything else is, is, is of secondary importance. So we, we need to understand there are times when it becomes particularly critical that we know God's will. When you're going through a season of uncertainty and you don't know what is ahead. You know, we all go through those times where we, it seems we're in the wilderness. It seems the heavens are as brass. Where is God? Why is it that he seemingly is not answering my prayers, that he's quiet and in that time, it's imperative that we dig deeper and we extend our spiritual roots in our pursuit for the knowledge of the true God who wants to reveal to us his will. So in Isaiah 45, 15, it says, Surely you are a God that hides yourself. But then later on, he talks about how he's not hiding from them. He's hiding for them. 
He's saying the reason why it seems I've, I've withdrawn myself from you is because I'm trying to bring you to a place where you will seek me and pursue me and you will go deeper in your relationship with me. Because your superficial probing is not enough. There comes a point, guys, where we have, all of us, we will be in a season where the only way we're going to know what is happening, the only way we're going to be able to understand and make sense of our, our current circumstances. MeUndies knows relationships aren't perfect. That's why they're celebrating imperfectly perfect matches with their new Valentine's Day collection. Right now, new customers get 25% off matching pairs. Match your bottom half to your better half in fun limited edition prints. Check out all of MeUndies' sustainably soft undies, socks, bralettes, loungewear, and more available in sizes extra small to 4XL. Get 25% off your first order of matching pairs, plus free shipping, at MeUndies.com VDay25. Is by digging in deeper and going, pressing into the power and the presence of God. Breakthrough is experienced by planting yourself in the presence of the Lord. And let me say this, and particularly under the leadership of those who have a prophetic edge. Uh, I can hear from God. Yes, you can hear from God. All Christians have the capacity to hear from God. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have the resident teacher. Absolutely. But God still said, I have given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? We read in 1 John 2, you know, you have need that no man teach you. But then we know Ephesians 4.11 says that he gave teachers. Acts 13.1, there were teachers in the church. What does that mean? Does that mean we don't need to go to church? We don't need people to teach us? No, not at all. He was saying that you don't need someone to explain everything to you because even in that place, when someone is, is ministering the Word of God, you will be able to discern whether it's truth or error. And that's the context of his statement in 1 John. If you have the Holy Spirit and you know the Word of God, you will clearly be able to say, oh, that's of God, that's not of God. And sometimes, even if as, an early, as, a, as a new believer, you may not understand fully what is being taught, but there's something in you that just says, man, I don't know. And it's your responsibility, if you have that holy hunch that something's not right, it's your responsibility and my responsibility to go to the Word of God and to test those who are teaching and preaching. In Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, it says they were commended because they tested those who professed to be apostles. So they found them false. They tested them. We all have a, a sense of which we need to hear from God, but there is this ministry that goes forth by uh, particularly those who have ascension gifts, the fivefold ministry that releases revelation, that releases the spirit of prophecy that will change your life. And the longer you linger under such ministries and teachings, the more readily your life will change. Because in the presence of God, in that place where revelation is being released prophetically, and I don't just mean someone's prophesying over you, but it also comes through the teaching of the Word of God because Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and life. There's something that is being released, and what it's doing is it's imparting life into you because it's the Spirit of God, and it's beginning to change you from the inside out, and the truth will set you free and will make Make you the person that God wants you to be. But if you stay home and you withdraw yourself, then you're doing exactly what the devil wants because Satan is an isolationist. He drives people away from the house of God. The man who had the Gadarian spirit, he lived in, in the wilderness. He lived in isolated places. But the work and, of the Holy Spirit is even when we're hurting, even when we don't feel like we need to be around people, is to draw us into community, is to draw us around people so that we get in the presence of God. And I can tell you that when you do it, even if you said, I didn't want to go, but I'm glad I came because God touched me and God did something in my life today. And you leave encouraged. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So I am. I am. I'm trying. All right. So 
Let's talk about prophetic activation. Let's look at Acts 13, 1 through 2. One day, verse 2 in particular, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, all right, stop right there. What are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord, right? And they're fasting. Later on in the same verse, it actually says they were praying. And what happens? While they're in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit speaks. You see, it's not in that place. Trust me, don't go by your emotions. When you're hurting, when you're offended over something, when you're dealing with anger or bitterness or or some type of fear or anxiety and you've isolated yourself and you've not been in the presence of God and your emotions are overwhelming you and controlling your life, don't make a decision at that time. Make every decision in the presence. Wait until you get back in the presence because in the presence of God, things are put in their proper perspective. In the presence of God, we begin to see things for what they really are. But if we're going by our emotions, if we're living in offense or we're, we're angry or we're just disappointed with the way our life is going, and then we make these decisions that have no scriptural basis at all, but it's in a reaction, a knee-jerk reaction to something, and it's merely emotional, then it's not been made in the presence of God. And then guess what happens? It doesn't lead to life. It actually causes us, if we're not careful to to repent, that, that it will bring us to a place where we will actually move further and further away from God. Do you know that the enemy, I believe, he's probably employed 50% of his imps to try to keep people from going into the presence of God. Every week, I hear the stories. There are times when I experience it personally. I don't feel like going to church. Yes, some days Glenn doesn't feel like going to church. All right? Forgive me. All right? It's not blasphemy. Okay? But some days I don't feel like it. (laughs) But guess what? I said I need to do it because I know it's the right thing, and I walk in obedience, and as I do what is is right, I know God will bless me. I know my, my things will change. But I really believe the enemy works overtime to try to prevent people from going to church. How many times do you see it? A couple gets in a big argument on the way to church or just before they go out the door. How many times is it that you just wake up on Sunday morning with a headache or all of a sudden you just feel discouraged, you feel distressed, you don't feel like going? And you know what? I believe there is a satanic attack that takes place to keep us from the presence of God. Why the enemy uses offense to offend people and move them out of ministries that are anointed by God because he knows that if they get out from that covering, it's going to stop their spiritual growth and eventually it will minimize their impact. Especially if they stay in, in, in a place of perpetual uh, offense. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So God speaks to us in the presence. When we're in the house of God, when we're gathering together, God speaks to us. You might say, well, this morning God has already spoken to me. There's something that, that you've said Glenn, that has come forth and really touched my heart and confirmed something to me and challenged me. And guess what? I may not ever know that what I said was for you, but the Holy Spirit knew you needed to hear it. So what happens is when we get into that place where someone is yielded to God to become a mouthpiece, to become a vessel, the Word of God goes forth. And that word of God, which is spirit in life, begins to quicken you, begins to challenge you, begins to maybe deconstruct some mindsets or or just encourage you, whatever it may be. Because it's God's word and it's truth and it's life. And God will change you. The Bible says we're not to be unwise. So how do we ensure that we do not lack wisdom? Let's look at this verse, Ephesians 5, 17. What? 
Do not be unwise. In other words, let me paraphrase. Don't be stupid. Okay? Come on. God's like, guys, come on. Don't be stupid. But understand what? The will of the Lord. So how do we keep ourselves from being unwise? We know what the will of the Lord is. So how do we know what the will of the Lord is? There's life-changing revelation in the Word of God. We have to be in the Word of God. But we have to be in a place where we're receiving that prophetic revelation as well as it's coming forth. In the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Now, I'm not saying these were two separate categories. These guys were teachers that prophesied, and they were also prophets that taught. And it comes forth in both ways, that there may be a time when when someone will prophesy, absolutely. And there are people that excel in that, and they may be typically those who, who function in the office of a prophet. But then there are those who teach, and they teach prophetically. They teach by revelation. It's not merely words that are coming forth. It's revelation. Paul said the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5, he said, The gospel that I preached to you was not in word only, but in power, in deep conviction, and in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he was saying that the antithesis is there can be a message that is just merely a word. It's not spiritual. There's no power. There's no revelation. There's no prophetic edge to it. There's no sense that God is speaking to his people. And so the office of the prophet and and even the apostle, because apostles are involved in releasing revelation as well, is critical for us to stay on track as believers. That's why they committed or devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, because they knew they were hearing from God. They knew that God was speaking to them. We're called not only to be witnesses and recipients of miracles or the acts of God, but God wants us to know his ways. I love Psalm 103, verse 7. It speaks about Moses and the children of Israel. And it actually says that God, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. You see, God... Is, uh, is amazing. Moses had this advantage in that he was intimately acquainted with the ways of the Lord. He knew the ways of the Lord, right? But the children of Israel, they saw the acts of God. They saw God move. They saw God do miracles. They, they witnessed it, but they did not know how to access that themselves. Only Moses knew how to access the, the power of God, to release the power of God because he knew his ways. And many of us, we sit back as spectators asking and wanting God to move, but there's some that are hungry and say, God, I don't want to just see you move. I'm not going to just ask you to move. I don't want to just see you flow through someone else, but I want to know your ways. I want to know what moves your heart. I want to know what causes you to take notice of what's happening. I want to know, God, what it's going to take to see you step up and to step in my life. We can never say with deep conviction that if there was not a Moses, that the children of Israel would have saw the acts of God. I believe without a Moses who knew his ways, the children of Israel would not have witnessed the acts of God. There's a king, and the Bible says, I think it was Jehoram, that he served the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the high priest. Why? After Jehoiada died, he turned away from God like that quickly. Why? Because... He was dependent on the revelation of someone else. He did not walk in a place where he personally knew the ways of the Lord. He saw the acts of God through Jehoiada, the high priest. But he did not know how to make God act. He did not know the ways of the Lord which would cause him to move. Without a Moses who knew the ways of the Lord, there would not have been any acts of God. 
Do you know when you sit under the power of the prophetic word long enough, things in your life will eventually start coming together? Do you know that? When you sit under the anointed teaching, when you sit in a place where someone speaks into your life prophetically, all of the above, when you get into that atmosphere, there needs to be a, a prophetic increase. There is a release for increase, prophetic release for increase. Where you get into that atmosphere, and all of a sudden God begins to talk to you. All of a sudden God begins to challenge you. And at first your, your heart might even be hard. At first you might be dull of hearing. And you may not understand what God is trying to do in your life. But the longer you stay in that presence and you keep coming, you keep coming, then all of a sudden it will become clearer and clearer to you. You begin to hear the voice of the Lord. You begin to understand his ways. Things will begin to make sense to you. And guess what happens? Eventually your life will start coming together. Hallelujah. Okay, let's go to Ezekiel 37. This is the story of the dry bones, remember? Here is God. Ezekiel takes him out into the midst of this valley of dry bones. While he's in the midst of the valley of dry bones, he shows him all these bones scattered, exceedingly dry, parched and bleached by the sun. And God asks him a strategic question. He says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? What do you think? Lord, you alone know. Good answer. Pretty safe answer. Right? Hey, God willing. If you're willing, all good, right? But God, no, no, no. That's not enough, Ezekiel. That's not enough. I want you to engage in the process. I want you to be someone who brings change and resurrection to people's lives. I don't mean this in a way that is offensive, but many people, when they first start coming to church, they're just like a bunch of dry bones. Some churches are full of dry bones. Right? And dry there's, there's nothing happening. There's no worship. People don't enter in. People's minds are on so many other things. They're carnally minded. They're not spiritually minded. Then there's new people, new Christians. I get that. They don't understand certain things. And then there's seekers, people that even aren't Christians. And they come to church, but they're on a journey and God is working in their life. And that's awesome. We need to be a church where people can come and, and, and seek after God and encounter him. But there comes a point where God says, look, you know what? These bones have to live. These bones have to live. And the way that these bones will come to life is through prophecy. Prophesy to the breath. The Hebrew word is ruach. Prophesy to the ruach, which is also translated breath, spirit, and wind. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds and breathe on these slain that they may live. It was only when he prophesied that this began to take place. And the Bible says that as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly rattling and bones came together. There is a slide for this. Bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. So what is happening is now, as a result, he's now prophesying the prophetic word of God is going forth, the word that is spirit and life, and eventually what takes place is there is a noise. Come on. There is a noise. And I really believe that when God is moving by His Spirit, there's going to be some noise. You can't help but be excited. You can't help but put your praise on. You can't help but give Him glory. You can't sit there like a bump on a log. You've got to get excited when God is moving by His Spirit. So what happens, though, is the bones start coming together. Do you see that? When you sit in that prophetic atmosphere... There's an activation that takes place and things start coming together. Your life that is disjointed, your life 
that where you've disconnected in so many ways, your purpose, your passion, you don't know what God's called you to do. In that point where you consistently come, consistently sit, consistently pray, consistently get in the Word, consistently sit under the ministry, then what happens is things start to come together in your life. Now, it's just the beginning, but you will mark, you will see a marked notice that, that things have changed, that something's happening, something's changing in my life. There's a coming together that is taking place. Now, at first, it's just sinews and flesh, but it's better than bones. Then there's some skin that's covered, but then there's still no breath. So what happens next is, you know, we're starting to see a change. We're starting to see people become more connected to, to God's purpose. Their life is coming together. They're getting stronger. They're, they're growing spiritually, but they've not yet experienced revival. They've not yet experienced revival because there's no breath. So God says, prophesy, what? Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Now they're still, now they're not just bones now, but God says there needs to be a prophetic word that is released. And as you sit under the prophetic anointing, you will begin to see that revival starts to be released. If people will, will gather and, and pray and believe and just keep sitting and, and, and contending, God will begin to release revival as we begin to even prophesy over our own individual lives, as we begin to look at our circumstances, and, and we should prophesy over our, our, the dry bones in our life. When was the last time that you did that and you said, dry bones live? Or you may have said, this, things are changing, but now I realize it's, there's some noise, there's some coming together in my life. I see a difference, but begin to speak it. Begin to prophesy over your life. Begin to release the word of the Lord. And what happens is as, you, as Ezekiel prophesies as he's commanded, breath comes in to these bodies, and they live. And guess what happens? They stand up, and they become an exceeding great army really interesting now let me just share something in closing we know ephesians 4:11 says that god gave gifts christ gave gifts to the church apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers their responsibility is to equip god's people to do his work build up the church the body of christ very interestingly, the word that is used there is kartartismos in the Greek language, sorry. But what it means is it can be used literally of, of bones that are, have been disconnected or even broken. And these bones are fused together or healed. That's what it means. So the job of fivefold ministry is to bring the bones back together again. It's very interesting. In fact, the word, and there are many other examples. Here are four, three examples. God bringing the universe into order. It's the same word. So it speaks of God put, bringing order to our lives. Restoring someone who's fallen, restoration. No matter if you've fallen, no matter what, God is able to restore you. And it also means to bring to completion that which is lacking. If anything's lacking... Right? Because we know at the story that there was skin, there was flesh, but it was still lacking. There's no breath. And so if there's something lacking, God says, through the equipping of the saints of the fivefold ministry, I will make you whole. I will raise you up so you will become an actual person, the breath of God in you, and you will stand. And when a church comes to that place of agreement and the church says, you know what, we're going to submit to what God is doing and to his word, then what takes place is we get raised up as an army, as an army of God, a great army, a valley of dry bones to an army of God that wreaks havoc on the kingdom of darkness. 
because we're being activated by the prophetic word of God. We're listening to the word of God. His word is spirit and life. We're canceling out the noise. We're not listening to the lies of the devil or to our own emotions anymore. We're not turning on all the stuff that is poisoning our minds and influencing us. So we're, we walk not in the counsel of the ungodly is what he says, but we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord and we fill our mind and our heart with God's word and the prophetic word of the Lord raises us up and brings us to a place. The last scripture I just want to refer you to is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It says that there should be no divisions among you, the church, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Look at this. The word translated perfectly joined together is the Greek word kartartismos. It's the same word. That means to put a bone together. And what it's speaking of now is a body that's fractured. A body that's divided because people have opinions. People have their ideas. People have their agendas. And they're not working together and submitting to God's plan. He says there should be no divisions among you. You should be perfectly kartartismost, joined together so that it's not just our individual lives that are brought back together, but we're joined together as a body. We're joined together as a family. We're joined together as God's people, walking in unity, recognizing that this body that he's raising up, yes, we use the, the metaphor of an army, but recognize that we're also individually just one body and we're just pieces of that body, parts of that body. One's an eye, one's an ear, one's a nose, one's a leg, whatever it may be. But we are called to be that place where we're connected together. Where we're walking together in that place. And it's as we submit ourselves. Lord, I need to be in your word. I need to be in your presence. God, I just need to be there. I just need to hear this. I just need to hear this. I need to hear the word. Builds me up. Encourages me. It imparts life. The purpose of prophecy is exhortation, edification, and comfort. 1 Corinthians 14.3 Exhortation, encouragement, edification. Build up comfort. Sometimes we need comfort, don't we? Because we just feel, man, it's, been, it's not been easy what I'm going through. But we need comfort. So I want to tell you guys, the prophetic presence of God through his word being released, not only when a Gary Hayes comes, not only if, if God uses me or Lynn or, to release a word or someone else, Brother Jeff, anyone else, or even you yourself as a body, that's important, but there's something more than that. There's specifically this atmosphere where the word is released, the word is released, and it begins to build, it begins to gain access into your heart and, and just fill you and fill you and fill you. And, and you start seeing things come together in your life. And then after a while, because you're constantly submitting and obeying and doing what God is saying to you, then things begin to change. Not only does it come together, but then it begins to be a revival in your life. And you begin to be raised up. And now you're an army. You're part of the army of God. You're a threat to the devil. You're no longer a victim. You're a victor. You're no longer the one who's conquered, but you're more than a conqueror. Hallelujah. Come on, let's stand together. We're going to just close in prayer. It's a little past 12. We're going to just close with a song, if we could do that, and just worship the Lord before we go out this morning. God wants to raise us up as a prophetic people. Our DNA, our culture, is apostolic and prophetic. It's apostolic and prophetic. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has set in the church, first of all, apostles. Secondly, prophets. Then thirdly, those work with miracles so God has said in the church that's his idea do you think God knows how to build his church better than we do so we need to go back to the blueprint don't we we need to build according to what he says apostles are wise master builders first Corinthians 3 says I believe it's verse 10 wise master builders so we're going to pray 
And then we're just going to close with this song. And I just want to encourage you as you go today, go knowing that even as the word has gone forth today, healing can take place. Just receive it. Healing can take place. You're in the presence of God. The word is imparting life to you. The word is bringing change to you. It's encouraging you. It's building you up. But receive it. Receive it. And if there is anyone that you would like prayer before we leave today, you're welcome to come and we'll pray with you as well, okay? But let's just worship the Lord. If you need prayer, if you'd like to be prayed for, just come, stand at the front, and we'll pray with you before we dismiss. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change, like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on, and Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Hi, I'm Dr. Andreas Michaelitis, Chief Psychologist at Noom. But what's Noom and why does Noom need a Chief Psychologist? Noom is a weight loss program that works with results that last because we know that changing the way you eat starts with your mind. With Noom's proven psychology-backed tools, one-on-one -on -one coaching, and flexible plans that emphasize progress over perfection, you'll have the tools you need to change your relationship with food. So sign up at Noom.com now and lose the weight for good. That's N-O-O-M.com.